You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. music means it's time for the davis garden show this is don shore and this is lois richter on a wet cold rainy winter day don it was summer last week what happened to it yeah what was it three weeks ago it was 102 degrees here um lois did not get to start the show with a bright beautiful day in the sacramento valley because we just broke a record we just broke a record. We just broke the <laughs> longest continuous period without rainfall measured in Sacramento. The last measurable rainfall before what happened last night or a couple nights ago, actually, for the little tiny bit that came down, something like 200 days in a row without measurable rainfall. Our last rain was in the first week of March. Now, we didn't get much out of what happened a couple of nights ago, and we didn't get that much out of what happened last night, but the pattern is there, folks, and it's Today is Wednesday, October 20th. The show will broadcast on Thursday, October 21st. Right now, as we record, it's overcast. It's 57 degrees. We're going up to a high today of only 62 degrees. Bear in mind, that's about 15 degrees below the average high temperature for this time of year. Night temperature tonight, because of the cloud cover, is going to be about 54. It actually did drop down to 40 two mornings ago. And some people even told me they got a little below 40. Someone told me they recorded 39 degrees. That's a significant transitional temperature for gardeners here in the Northern California region. Rain is likely tonight. I'm looking at the seven day forecast for the National Weather Service. and We haven't seen this for months and months and months. Rain is likely tonight, uh, 54 degrees. Thursday, the date of the broadcast, 70 degrees, rain. What are they saying about the total from that? Maybe a tenth of an inch possible. It's that kind of rain. Rain is likely Thursday night after about 11 p.m. And that's going to be another tenth or even up to a quarter of an inch. Friday rain, then a chance of showers. Friday's only going to get to 66 degrees. And then Friday night, it's going to be mostly cloudy, going to drop down to about 47 degrees. Saturday, 40% chance of rain, mainly after about 11 a.m., mostly cloudy with a high near 61 61. So what, four Saturdays ago, it was over 100 degrees, and this one is going to be 61 degrees. Bigger storm coming in Saturday night, Sunday. Saturday night rain is likely. Only going to drop down to about 52. Sunday just says rain. Cloudy with a high near 62 for the whole day. Sunday night rain. The rain could be heavy at times. Cloudy with a low about 53. Monday rain. Monday night shower is likely. Tuesday a chance of showers. The forecast discussion on this, that storm coming in Sunday could carry one to three inches of rain for the Sacramento Valley down here on the valley floor. More rain as you get up into the foothill and a pretty significant amount of snow, snow accumulating up on the mountains. So they're looking at one to three inches possible, moderate to heavy rain Sunday, Sunday night into early Monday, extended period of moderate to heavy rain, actually, which could lead, unfortunately, to some ash and debris flows up in the burn areas. Um, They could be significantly more rain as they get up into the foothills. And then it'll shift into a somewhat drier pattern for next week. I'm just going to go ahead and do our public service announcement right now. They're ripping up the streets all over Davis. 
The two major corridors, east to west, are Covell Boulevards and Fifth Street, where my business is. And they were just ready this week to start blasting out four inches of asphalt and put an entirely new surface on there. And that's been delayed by at least a week. So those of you who are in Davis going east to west on the two major corridors, uh, Covell Boulevard or, or Fifth Street, be prepared for delays when it stops raining because they're going to move as fast as they possibly can. I'm getting basically daily updates from the city uh, project manager about this because my business will be you know, basically shut down for a day while they do this, as will significant number of us between L and Poline streets. But the bigger one is Covell Boulevard, which is a major uh, road on the northern edge of town. And they're already in the process of trying to resurface that. They're trying to manage traffic on parts that have actually been stripped and are now basically gravel bed. Slow going as you go on the major corridors. If you're going east to west, I would suggest 8th Street. That's our public service announcement for the day. <laughs> this project has been going on all summer. They were pushing as fast as they possibly could to try to get the last surfacing and striping done before the rains. But these rains are early, folks. We typically only get about one inch of rain in October. And the last few years, we haven't really even had that. So to have the possibility of as much as two to three inches of rain by the end of the month is above average, to put it mildly. But also, a lot of us have just stopped planning for that kind of thing. Well, let's, let's shift to the positive part of this. It's a great time to plant stuff. So if you don't want to go on those busy resurfacing roads in Davis, uh, then go ahead and get out and do some vegetable planting, overseed your lawn, throw out some cover crop seed. It's perfect. We're going to have seven to 10 days where it's going to be either partly cloudy or entirely cloudy and raining lightly. So we really couldn't, from a gardening standpoint, ask for much better in terms of planting, you know, filling in your turf, uh, planting some bell beans or fava beans out in the vegetable garden. These temperatures we're looking at if you still, like me, have tomatoes ripening on your vines, I have 10 or 15 each on some of the more vigorous indeterminate varieties. They've been turning color all week to the point that they're not fully red ripe or yellow ripe or whatever that variety should be, but they're about halfway there. And I'm probably going to go out today and remove a bunch of those because what happens when the nights start dropping down around 40 as they have is one, the ripening process slows down uh, just as it does at very high temperatures. The tomato ripens most quickly when it's in the optimal temperature range for tomato vines, which is about 55 to 90 degrees. Above that or below that, metabolism slows down, ripening slows down, but what doesn't slow down is spoilage. And so if there's any kind of mechanical injury on a tomato, you know, just a bird having pecked a little hole in it or just having bumped against the cage and damaged the skin, as it's ripening and getting soft, it's also spoiling. Bacteria are moving in very rapidly. So my suggestion for those of you who still do have tomatoes on your plants out there is to start pulling them and bring them in, set them on your counter, dry them off. It's not a bad idea because that the moisture on the skin encourages the spoilage organisms. So dry them off, set them on your counter, and they will ripen at a steady pace and be just as good as they would if they'd ripened out on the vine. Uh, so assume assuming that your house is in a temperature range between 50 and 90. We hope, yes. <laughs> if it's hotter than that or colder than that, what the heck, leave them out in the garden. So they're going fast and this is probably it. Normally, uh, I, let's, I'm not, I shouldn't even use the term normally. In an average year, we would probably still have dry, sunny weather on through the month of October and the night temperatures wouldn't be this low. These night temperatures are below average, were below average as well. So it's just a matter of getting that last harvest off of there and no, probably there won't be much more after that. So it's time if you haven't pulled those out, cut them off, I should say. Yeah, maybe start give some thought to getting in some of those cold crops or if you don't want to do that. And by the way, I almost always plant 
a tiny fraction of the area in the winter vegetables that I do in the summer vegetables. I mean, I have a much smaller winter garden. I like to go out after I cut down the tomato vine, I take, this is my formula. People like me to have a formula, my recipe. I take three fava bean seeds, shove them in the ground about an inch deep, right next to the stem of the tomato that I just cut down. That's it. That's my cover crop for that spot. So I figure that <laughs> what I'm doing is enhancing that soil, adding some nitrogen, putting in something that'll grow faster and taller than the weeds, and it's pretty and it fills the space. Because a lot of times with the cover crops, I'm just trying to plant things to have an intentional cover rather than what I know is going to come up if I don't do anything. There's been a lot of people right now who are about to experience what happens when you stop watering your lawn in order to kill it. It's rained. You get weeds. Stuff is going to come up. Some of it might be the grass that was there that just made it through the summer even without water. More likely, and people ask me this, where do these come from? Well, there's a seed load in your soil wherever you are. And if you want to, if you want to illustrate how this happens, I've done this. Take a flat, fill it with propagation medium that you're going to plant some seeds in. And I've done that and then set it on the ground and gone off and done something else and forgotten about it. How is it that weeds start to come up in that flat of soil that probably was more or less sterile and probably didn't have actual weed seeds in it? Well, once you identify the species, it's easy to figure out. The colonizers are the windblown ones, like dandelions and milkweed and things that blow their seeds in. Then you'll notice that the little tiny seeds from weeds nearby on the ground somehow got in there. Well, they probably blew in from a gust of wind, or in some cases, some plants actually, their seed pods split rapidly enough under certain temperature conditions to explode their seeds out, send them with some propulsion to the surface nearby. That's how oxalis gets in there. So you'll get five or 10 species of weeds showing up in a seemingly bare soil just by letting it sit out there. Imagine that going on in your yard for decades in your lawn, and then you kill your lawn and all that seed is lying on the surface just waiting for all the competition to be removed. Well, you removed it during the summer and there it is. And about a quarter to a half inch of rain is usually all it takes to get that germinating. It's an opportunity. If it comes up, my son just did this leveled out an area. We're going to be planting it with grass. He watered it very thoroughly for you know, a couple hours because it was bone dry. There's a fine layer now of stubble, of green stuff that's come up, mostly grass, but also some of our typical weeds here. We can just now take a hoe and in just a couple of minutes, kill all those off and then go ahead and throw the seed down. So you can use this to your advantage, but be aware that all those seeds are lying there waiting to go. But October is a great time to do stuff in the garden. But if you say that the first quarter of engine rain is going to get the weeds to start coming up, and I assume it takes them a little while to germinate, maybe a day or two, a week or two? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that means that you're going to have to go out and do your weeding in the rain. Between storms? Yeah, well, I do a lot of weeding in the rain. It's a great time to pull weeds. The soil is softer and it's very comfortable to be out there. Uh, it's actually a very nice time to weed. They have moderately moist. If you try to pull a taprooted weed out of dry soil, it will simply break off in your hand, as everybody knows from experience. And then it'll regrow. It'll resprout. In most cases, it will. Yeah. And so if you wait until there's some moisture, now bear in mind, 10th of an inch, that's all that's doing is high. We haven't even gotten moisture to the ground underneath the bigger trees. All this is doing this first little batch of storms, clearing the dust very nicely off the leaves and leaving them on the windshield of my truck below and <laughs> barely cleaning up the plants. You notice the plants look a lot better right away and then gradually hydrating the soil. And this first, I would say almost the first inch of rain is going to be necessary to really spread out over the surface by capillary action, soak in, get that surface 
a little more increasing the infiltration rate of that surface, the breaking up, breaking up that dry, crusty surface. We're not going to see heavy penetration until we get a full inch of rain. Then you'll find as you dig down, you'll probably go six inches, eight inches, you'll hit dry soil again. So you still probably need to irrigate if you're going to do any planting, unless we literally get one to three inches of rain as possibly could happen on Sunday. I want to, well, okay, so have we done our announcements? We're yes, with PSA that? is the road conditions in Davis. And there's also lots of great programming here at KDRT. You can listen to any of a number of great shows. Uh, let's use an example. That's life. Lois and I've Richter. Been having, Lois Richter. And I've been having some authors come on. So um, just before you're listening to this show, if you listen to it on Thursday, I will have had a show because we pre-record these things with an author, uh, Barbara Meyer Link. Oh. I recommend to you to her or her to you or something Try that like again. that. And her new book, <laughs> no, it's fine. Her new book is Choke Cherry Girl. And uh, if you go to the archives, kdrt.org, and you can see all of the shows that people have done. And some of us, like Don and I, do descriptions of what the shows were. So you can always go to the archives and you can listen to old shows because we are not music shows. Music shows only archive for two weeks, but we're there just, well, indefinitely. Choke Cherry Girl? Yeah. My, my mother grew up with choke cherries. She knew exactly what those were in the black. I know kitchen. exactly what they are too. Yeah, I've, actually, I've actually, I've actually, I have special ordered them for a couple of customers over the years. People from the, my mother was from South Dakota, the Black Hills. Choke cherries were something you went out and made jam from because they were very flavorful, but rather astringent. Uh, and it never sweetened as much as you'd want. So you would just make jam and sweeten them. And they do grow here. Just for those of you who might be nostalgic about them. Yes, there are choke cherries that can be grown here in the Sacramento Valley. There's probably... Other fruit trees that are better use of that space in your garden. I've always thought that choke cherries were one of those things they were using because they were there, not because it was their preferred fruit tree. But uh, she was rather nostalgic about choke cherries. Uh, also, if you go on there, you'll see that last week on That's Life, I was your guest. We I talked see. about we talked about water. So if you're in the Davis area and want to learn about where our water comes from, uh, that's what we chatted about. Very uh, very fun conversation we had there. Most people have no idea where their water comes from. It's very awesome. It's always interesting. It was it was geology and hydrology. You name it. That's right. All, all the aspects of how we get our water over the surface, into our kitchens, or even out of the ground, depending on where you are. Before we go on to our questions, you mentioned something about the distribution of water as it comes down and moves into the soil. Yeah. And I wanted to tell my listeners about this wonderful video that I found. It's very old. Ignore the last minute. But other than that, it's very good. <laughs> Um, and it's from 1959. It is a lecture demonstration from Washington State University titled Water Movement in Soils. They have created um, slices of ground, that is to say, a glass plate front and back, maybe an inch thick with dirt in it, and different kinds of soils are being tested. And then they make a little a trough at the top, a little V-shaped thing, and they pour water into it. And this uh, simulates what would happen if you had uh, row crops and you had ground and you had little furrows and you put water in the furrows. What happens? Well, you would expect, if you were like me and not really into soil science, you would expect that 
gravity would take the water and just pull it down. I mean, obviously when it rains, the water goes from up to down, straight down. Well, it turns out that that's not the way it works in the soil because when the water, once the soil is, once the water is no longer free moving, which is what they call it when it's open to the air and it's in the soil, then the capillary action, is that the right word Don? Capillary yes. action? Yep. Um, draws the water in all directions from wherever it is. Now, if there's already water above it, it, you won't see any difference, but you can watch this go down and makes almost like a circle. And it isn't just going straight down. It isn't going straight out. It's, it's even going up with the capillary action as well, since you put it down in a ditch. But it's fascinating to watch. And it's very interesting. And they have different kinds of soils. It shows how fast move, things move through the different kinds of soils. Um, oh, and the interesting one is what happens when you put something, when there's a soil change, when you put something that is different. So they had... Um, well, anyway, just watch the video. Yeah, the, part, the part that I think would be useful to a lot of people dealing with um, um, container soils, planter boxes, raised planters, we talk about this all the time. When the water goes through and hits a layer of a different texture, it spreads out above that different texture before it goes down into that soil of different texture. And there's a and long period. A it long doesn't period. go down until there's enough weight of water above it to force it down. Yep. Now, if you go study agricultural irrigation, which I did, and I remember vividly that that class was at eight in the morning, winter quarter. There is a exciting topic to study at eight in the morning in a winter quarter. Most of us walked in there, settled back in our jackets and quietly went back to sleep. But this was from an agricultural standpoint. So the first thing that they present to you is the infiltration rate, which is something we've talked about. Is soils differ as to how quickly water soaks in. And uh, with very dense soils or soils that have been structurally damaged, and this is important from an ag standpoint, been tilled and rolled over and the harvest operations have compacted the surface, the infiltration rate can be rather slow. So that's the first point is that water will puddle very rapidly simply because of structural damage to the soil or because of the density of the soil. But the, the rate at which it goes in first depends on the force behind it. Gravity is one simple force. You can see this at play all around the Sacramento Valley during the growing season as the farmers make ditches, furrows down the rows, take little siphon devices, hundreds and hundreds of them for each field and siphon the water from the deeper ditch that's come from the irrigation district into the shallower trench and then it runs down the field. We have a farm. Uh, when we first bought this farm, it was in sugar beets, which you don't see in the valley much anymore. And then it was in field corn. Both of those, the farmer irrigated by that very simple technique, pulled a deeper ditch all the way around the property and then pulled furrows down the field, this has to be level, obviously, for this to work, at least reasonably level. It actually needs to flow very slightly in one direction, puts out the water at a particular rate determined by the size of the siphons. The most boring job in the world is the guy who's out there suctioning each one of those siphons, dropping it into each furrow all day long so that it flows at a certain rate. If they apply it too fast, it runs down the field to the end. It doesn't soak in at this end. If you apply it too slowly, it all soaks in before it runs down. So there's considerable science, and really I would say more engineering and math, involved in the process of determining the rate of flow you need, the size of siphon you need, and so on to irrigate, let's say in our case, 13 acres of some kind of row crop on relatively level soil. For an irrigation district to work, the soils have to be leveled. When I first moved here, uh, they talked about having just recently, over the last couple of decades, 
laser leveled most of the soils in the area. The first thing you notice, if you move to the Sacramento Valley, incredibly flat it is here. And there is a slight grade drop from one side of Davis to the other, but you don't notice it, it's that slight. And uh, the fields are leveled perfectly. You don't see, there's here and there around the area, you see the old terrain that would have existed here before this kind of agriculture came in. It's a little startling, the slightly rolling, gentle undulations of our, our valley floodplain. Otherwise, it has to be leveled for that to work. And the infiltration rate is the first thing that matters. If you're applying water with a hose at 60, you know, uh, at, at six, 50 to 60 pounds of pressure from your, your city water supply, that's too fast for the soil to absorb it. So the first thing is it's going to run off and then it's going to soak in. But if you apply it at the right rate till it's soaking in and spreading out by capillary action, you can water a predictable zone. And this is what we're always talking to people about is how to water a tree, for example. Yeah, you can get enough gallons by standing there with a hose at full throttle, but it'll run off. It won't soak in. If you put it at a trickle, you have to run it for a very, very long time, which is fine as long as you know how long a long time is for that particular tree. In between is something that puts out water, it reduces the flow, something close to the infiltration rate and allows it to soak in as well as move outward by what Lois is describing, which is capillary action. Once you stop applying the water, capillary action is extremely important. And if you're in a very coarse soil that's gravelly or sandy or has a lot of additives that make it drain faster, gravity is still very important. Water will rush through those larger particles down to wherever it stops and then will spread out from there. If you're in a more typical soil, a loam soil, which is a mix of silt, sand, and clay, or a balanced proportion of those things, it will, it will flow in at a particular rate that we can predict, okay? And then it will spread out from that at a rate that we can also predict. So once you know this, if you have a drip irrigation system on your property, you know what output of emitter is best for your soil, higher output if its infiltration rate is good, lower output if its infiltration rate is slower. You then calculate how long you have to run your system in order to give the whole root zone of the plant a good soaking. Um, that's kind of the, the brief summary of what's going on there. But here's an illustration at the extreme end. One, potting soils are an extreme end. Two, how can you possibly water an orchid with an ice cube? <laughs> okay, this is this was a thing. It was on the internet. One company jumped into this in a big way and said, look, it's so simple. Just one ice cube X, every X number of days. I don't remember. How can that possibly work? Well, I mean, that's only, what, an eighth of a cup of water in an ice cube, if, if that. And yet, this was based on something we've all done in the nursery industry for years. You ever do a garden, like a home and garden show, one of those public events, you're putting a bunch of plants out there in a place where you can't really water them. You can't go around and water enough to do what we always tell you to do, have water go all the way through the pot and drain out. We want you to normally do that. We just take, ice. they walk around at the end of the day after the public has left with great big trash cans full of ice. And we all go running out, we get scoops of them. I've done this many, many times. And we go around, we put little, a number, a certain number of ice cubes around each plant before we leave for the day so that they will melt slowly and trickle in. Now we know that's not enough water to really fully drain through and drain out onto the floor, which is why we're doing it because the owners of that community center don't want us draining out onto their floor. We put pads down to prevent any moisture damage, but we don't want free flow of water out onto the lovely wood surface or whatever it is that we're, our display is on. One ice cube will melt 
It's not enough water to flow through, but we know that once it is melted and soaked in, it will redistribute, not just out, but also back up. It'll go up to the side of the soil that's on the side of the pot and all the way down through and provide adequate, not optimal, but adequate irrigation to get that poor little plant through the four day event or whatever it is in that convention hall because of capillary action, moving the water molecule by molecule from the surface of the peat compost sand combination that we call potting soil to fully redistribute through the root zone. I have a concern about this because- You don't do it all the time. This <laughs> is not recommended. I mean yeah. Because the, if the soil is dry, then there is not going to be any capillary action taking it anywhere. There is capillary action right away. If you put water on a dry soil surface, it will immediately spread out across the surface by capillary action and then soak in. There is a brief period when it's running out and puddling because of the infiltration, because of the surface crusting over for mechanical reasons or other reasons, but it very rapidly does spread out over that surface and hydrate it. It will even spread up. Here's a fun test. Take a, a bowl-like pot and put a bowl-like shape of soil in it that's absolutely dry, dry enough that it's hydrophobic, like the peat moss will sometimes get. We've talked about that before, where the peat gets so dry that water just runs off the surface. Get your, get your dry soil in that bowl, put a cup of water in, which is going to immediately pool because it can't soak in right away. You will watch it gradually spread out and up, up the soil that's up the sides and soak in. And, and so and capillary, that's action, capillary action is moving it very rapidly. There's a brief period before the soil hydrates because some parts of that soil mix can be hydrophobic. Some of the fine bark that's in there and the peat moss can get dry enough to become hydrophobic, but it does rapidly rehydrate in most cases, depending on how dry it got. But, but that's exactly what I'm trying to, to get to Don is that you have to have enough water put on yeah, yeah. to moisten all of the soil. Yes. So if I did what you did and I put an ice cube in it, mm -hmm. it would moisten the soil where it melted and, and had the water and it might spit out yeah, maybe half an inch or so. Oh, no, it'll spread out quite a ways. It's not going to be enough water to climb up the top because you would, it, there's not enough water to moisten all that soil. It depends on how many ice cubes you put on there. Yes, I see what you're saying. No, I mean, it, it is um, <clears throat> one ice cube is, is generally not enough. Although these orchid people were telling you, you could put one ice cube on the orchid. Well, the orchid was in a four inch pot. So, I mean, well, <laughs> so that would work. Depends on, yes, also it's isn't in soil. It's in bark. It Bark in, doesn't have that same. Bark is control. actually, bark is actually hydrophobic. Bark can be a problem if it gets dry, but uh, it, yes, you have to calibrate your ice cubes. Again, folks, we're not, we're not recommending this, although it works in a pinch. A big block, you. a 50 pound block of ice. A, it really does work in a pinch. And it's funny that this company tried to capitalize on this by selling them as it's, this is some sort of brilliant uh, marketing strategy. It did make it simpler. I mean, I run into this all the time when I'm talking to new houseplant buyers who ask how to water, and we've said this before, we think they mean how often or whatever. No, they mean literally how much, when, where, what do we do? I mean, they don't know the process of watering. And I'm, I'm always worried they're gonna take home their pothos or their orchid or whatever they've bought, set it on their nice wooden surface, forget about how to water it and, and maybe dribble a couple of tablespoons on it or something because they're concerned about water running through. We years ago started a process of handing them a vinyl saucer with every plant that goes out. It's part of the price. They get a saucer appropriate to that size. And it's a, the reason we do this is because of the number of times we've had this conversation, they don't know how much water to put on. So you're right. One ice cube is probably not enough 
for a eight inch pot, but it's enough for a four inch pot. You need two for a six inch and so on. Once you've done this for a while, you begin to calibrate it a little bit. Uh, but the key is that you, it is best, it is optimal <laughs> to put on enough water for it to flow all the way through by gravity. Now we're talking about containers, not out in your garden and then drain out the surplus. And then if you didn't happen to distribute that evenly on the top of the pot, it doesn't matter. You know that it will spread outward anyway because it will go out by capillary action. All the soil will be hydrated. Uh, if you don't put on enough, then you run into this problem, but we keep encountering where the top couple inches are maybe moist and it's still dry down below. We'll pull those orchids out of the pots and show them that your bark in here is like powder dry and that you need to water more thoroughly. And in some cases, and this is a more extreme case, uh, like peat moss in particular, but coir and, and, and the actual moss that's used for orchids can get so dry that you have to put the whole thing into a bowl and let it sit there for a while, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And then you'll notice as water suddenly gets past the surface resistance and gets in, starts rapidly redistributing through the soil and the whole thing sinks down into the water. You know, you've begun to properly hydrate that soil. It's an extreme situation, but it happens to home gardeners a lot because a lot of container plants are now grown in these very coir-based and peat-based and moss-based materials. So I'm thinking about the African violets and the old water from the bottom uh, mm -hmm. advice. So if you had an African violet in a pot and you had a saucer underneath it that was you know, tall enough so that the it, it, it's above the hole in the bottom of the pot, couldn't you just put water in the saucer and by have capillary you, action come, have it move up? Isn't that how you water your African violets? No, I, I water the soil. No, we always water them from below. We do exactly what you're describing. We set them in a tray and we put a half inch of water in the tray. We and watch it get sucked up, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And this is a classic example of capillary action. You're putting, I mean, there's a lot of greenhouses that use this principle in production. They have, uh, this was beginning to be a thing way back when I was a student. It's actually massive production scale. Now they have types of benches in their greenhouses they can put water into. They put all these plants in, in a medium that absorbs water readily, such as peat or coir, or some of them use these moss materials. And then they flood the bench. So there's no water is going in above. It's all going in from below. A couple of problems with that. You need good water quality. You don't want a whole lot of salts in the water because if you have salts in the water and you're not draining through the soil, they accumulate. And those of us who garden in places like San Diego, where there are a lot of salts in the water or Davis when we were on well water, uh, you know, much of all the time, uh, you'd find this fine layer of calcium and in our case, actually borax deposits on the edge of where the water moved by capillary action. That's the extreme edge of where it moved by the capillary ionic movement of the water and the salts are deposited at the edge. And so you can get a, a drip system in the garden where there's a ring of white powder essentially around the irrigation zone because they only put out so much water at a time and it never is enough to, to you know, dissolve those salts and carry them away. And then we do it and we use the regular Davis tap water. And there are certain plants that we always leave in about a quarter to a half inch of water. All the carnivorous plants that we sell, for example, uh, are which are outside or in trays. So we can just put a quarter to a half inch of water in them all the time. It is an effective way to water certain plants. Water quality can be an issue for some plants, but you're using 100% capillary action when you're watering that way. And that's been a standard method recommended for African violets for as long as I can remember. They do make special pots, right? Now here's a great example of capillary action, where you're taking a piece of cloth that looks like a shoestring 
running it from the bottom up into the soil and you're putting water in the bottom and the shoestring is pulling water up in and then by capillary action it's moving out from the shoestring into the highly peat moss based soils around it. Peat moss has a lot of capillary activity, shall we say, yeah, highly ionically attractive to the water molecule. And so you can put water in and have it go up this shoestring and redistribute. Thing is, it would work without the shoestring. It would work just fine as long as some of the soil, quarter to a half inch on the bottom is pulling water up that way. Generally speaking, people who do this allow the water to drain out wait a few days before adding more so they don't keep constant moisture on that plant, but it does work. It's again, the water quality would be the only concern we have with that. But we use capillary action all the time. And uh, when I'm watering with a drip system and I've got two, two gallon an hour emitters on a tree that I know is gonna grow to be like a you know, walnut tree, a full-size tree. But when I'm starting out for the first couple of years, it has two, two gallon an hour emitters, a foot or so away from the trunk on either side. If I run that system for two to four hours, which is what I do minimum for a young tree, I'll have a whole wet zone around that tree, about a four foot diameter circle. The water is only being applied in two places. If my soil were too sandy, as it is in some parts of say South Davis, I would just have two wet spots. But because I have a silty loam and silt is a fairly fine particle, bigger than clay, but smaller than sand, the finer the particle, the more the ionic attraction, the more the water will move out rather than down. I get a full wet zone if I run it long enough with just a couple emitters on there. As the tree grows, I want to expand the watering zone. I just add a couple more emitters further out, either with a ring around the tree or just continuing down the line is my lazy approach. You know, so I have a the tree will now have four two gallon an hour emitters instead of two. And I run at the same duration, I'm getting a, a solid now rather oval shaped wet zone. And you can predict and work with the shape of that zone based on the capillary movement of the water. I had a friend I was talking to who said, I was worried about my tree. And so I've been, I've been, I've been watering it extra. And so she would take a hose and put the hose on the bark of the tree and turn it on every day every for day. 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever. Bark? I, I explained to her that you really don't want to be watering the bark of the tree. Okay. Uh, put it a little bit away and better yet have something where you have not just one spot, but you know, a circle on a hose or so we, we talked about possibilities and then, and then don't do it for you know, five minutes a day, do it a little longer. <laughs> add up all those less frequently. Add up all those five minutes is <laughs> for seven or eight days and do them yeah. all at once is what we, we find ourselves saying that a lot. You know, your 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 total number of minutes is right. The problem is it's none of them are long enough duration to really give the tree what it needs. We applaud her, by the way, for watering the tree. The only reason for being concerned about watering the bark, watering the trunk. I mean, trunks get watered when it rains, right? Don't we worry about that? Uh, we do it cold then. We, that's right. We worry if it's warm. Rain in May is a disaster for us. It did Phytophthora and all the other fungus things are everywhere when that happens. But right now we're getting below that magic number, 50 to 55 degrees, where these water molds like Phytophthora are active. So rainfall here happens at a time when these soil organisms are not going to be typically infecting through the bark. But if she's doing that in the summer every day, unfortunately, that's inviting trouble, especially if there's bark or mulch, particularly finer particle mulch up against the bark of the tree. So, you know, it's, it's odd that I can have an acre of, of almonds standing in water for 24 to 36 hours in the winter when we have flood years, 
and there's no problem. But if anything like that were to happen in the summertime, many of the trees would die. Well, that has to do with the temperature range of the activity of those soil organisms. Uh, longer is better, obviously, but we can take, we can certainly, the point of the video, and I really think this is something that most people don't realize, most of the water movement in your soil after the initial application of the water is not so much gravity or the pressure from the source, it's capillary redistribution of the water by the ionic attraction of the soil particles. Those soil particles primarily are uh, clay, very fine particles, or silt, sand is just much coarser. And then the organic component makes a huge difference. Our soils here have a very, very low natural organic content. This is a valley grassland plant community with only 18 inches of rainfall in a normal year. So we don't really have a whole lot of like leaf mold or stuff like that. But grasslands do have some organic content and we add it as gardeners. And one of the things that happens when you add organic material, particularly just on the surface, is it enhances the soil's ability to move water by capillary action. It also reduces the evaporation of the water lost to the sky when the soil is open. So mulching is helpful in more than one regard, increasing the organic content and reducing the evaporation. Well, let's go to the questions that we had. Yep. And well, this ties in very well. It's another soil question. This is from Ding. And it says, I found grubs in the soil at my house in Davis. Do you carry products to treat the soil for grubs? I read online about natural treatments like milky spore and beneficial nematodes, but I'm also happy to get your advice. Yeah, I can't remember whether we had answered this, but these grubs come up starting in about February, March, and now people are finding them again. It really depends on where you're listening as to whether you have any reason to be concerned about these. Uh, these are white grubs. That's the simplest way to describe them. They're about an inch long. They tend to curl and they, um, uh, they're not like maggots. They're, you know, they, they're not like caterpillars. They're a grub. And they're, they all turn into beetles. And almost all of the beetles that they turn into here are either harmless or sufficiently low numbers. Even though you find a lot of grubs in one place, the beetles themselves don't do that much damage. However, if you're listening to us in parts of the East, Atlantic. I don't remember the exact distribution of it at this point. Japanese beetle and two other beetles that are very similar do a lot of damage. In fact, it's hard for me to imagine gardening with Japanese beetles. They sound like kind of a nightmare. Um, that's one of the beetles that can come out of grubs like this. We don't have Japanese beetles in established in California. We've had a long effective, successful quarantine to keep them out. When they do happen to show up, they're eradicated very quickly. The beetles that they turn into are rose chafers or June beetles or any of a number of other black beetles. Some of them feed on, well, rose chafers feed on rose petals. So that's not fun, but usually we don't have so many of them here that it's a big issue. The grubs themselves, which people seem to find predominantly in their vegetable gardens where there was a bunch of organic stuff, you know, you piled stuff at one end and you're moving it and you're turning the soil and a whole bunch of these come up. This is what freaks people out is they tend to oviposit one area. You get a lot of them there. They do feed on roots somewhat, though typically not much of an issue in the vegetable garden for us. They some, there's another type that feeds on the roots of your lawn. So if you have a particularly high population, they can do a fair bit of damage to certain types of grasses. Over the years, as people have gotten away from the more delicate species like Kentucky bluegrass and gone to deeper rooted, more vigorous grasses like the fescues, I have seen cases where there are obviously grubs there, but you could barely tell because the fescues are so vigorous and resilient against that. Whereas bluegrass, big areas would die out. People would go out and buy insecticides to treat their lawn. The bottom line for listeners in California, 
is that there's really never any reason for us to treat for this with an insecticide. The adults in most cases are harmless or in sufficiently small numbers and dispersed enough in your garden that they simply aren't an issue. More to the point, those grubs are extremely popular with birds. And a pop, the question came up on next door. Someone posted a picture of some of these white grubs and said, anybody want these? Somebody got chickens and a bunch of people jumped right in and said, yeah, bring them on over. Chickens love them. So that's one of the simplest ways to get rid of these grubs. I guarantee scrub jays and scrub jays, mockingbirds, robins, they also love them. And possums and skunks and anything that's walking through at night. So the very simplest thing to do with these things, since they can't, they're not particularly mobile at this stage, just toss them out on the open ground somewhere under a bush nearby or something. And I pretty much guarantee if the scrub jays don't take them out during the day, the possum that's coming into your backyard at night will take them out at night. So there's plenty of things that like to eat grubs. Grubs are a very good part of the diet of animals and people worldwide. They're certainly something you can all consider. Look for recipes. Uh, but anyway, the bottom line is you don't need to treat them here. However, if you're listening in, I don't know, Indiana or someplace like that, check locally because uh, there are organic control products and a variety of pheromone trap materials and things you can try to use for Japanese maples. And I suggest you talk to folks there about how effective those things are, because I keep reading all this back and forth about where you need to locate the traps, for example, are you drawing them into your garden if you put a trap out there? Or do you put them on the edge of the garden so it takes them away from the vegetables and the trees and things that you care about? That's something we fortunately don't have to deal with out here. So these grubs in our case. You had, in the email uh, message that you wrote back, um, by the way, for the listeners, when we get questions, frequently Don will just answer them. Yeah. But if it's something that seems appropriate for the show, then we might answer them on the show as well. But you mentioned two things, the larva of hoplia and scarabid yep. beetles. Yeah. What are those? They're like June beetles. They're those shiny black types of beetles. And they, uh, some of them, hoplia beetles do some feeding on like rose petals. They're one of the, one of the, if you're going out and looking at your beautiful hybrid tea roses in spring and a few of them have holes in the petals, pretty good chance that was what did it. So if that makes you mad, well, kill them. But uh, for the most part, my experience with these types of beetles is they're very vulnerable. Uh, you, if you got a good population of uh, jays, uh, mockingbirds in particular, uh, in your garden, most of these things will just disappear, honestly. So we don't get the massive populations here. This is something to know about some of these stink bugs, for example, and other beetles when they show up in our area. My first question is, is this going to be a unique new problem? In other words, is it going to massively multiply and hit everything of a particular range of host plants and become a real nuisance to people? Like, for example, the Asian woolly hackberry aphid that is now on every Chinese hackberry in the region? Or is it going to be something like the brown marmorated stink bug, which was a, a huge problem back east in the mid-Atlantic regions, but came out here, it's been a, 10 years now, it's just part of the background. It's just one of the stink bugs you'll find out there. We're not getting massive numbers of them because we don't simply don't have the habitat for them to increase hugely. They like deciduous, unbroken deciduous forests. We don't have those. Our deciduous forests are orchards and they're sprayed heavily. So there's not going to be anything like that establishing in huge numbers. They have their own pest problems that we can talk about, but they typically don't establish. And that's, you know, when we get news about a new pest, people tend to get very concerned. My question is, there's only so much of a niche out in the ecological preserve that you call your garden uh, for them to establish. The question is, will they become a dominant pest or will they just be another one of those things that's out there in relatively small numbers? And most of these types of beetles that come out of these white grubs in our area are basically, yeah, they do a little damage, but I can't imagine applying a pesticide for them. It certainly wouldn't meet with any integrated pest management values that we profess here on the show. And it certainly wouldn't be a good thing to do in your compost pile. 
No, no. So we just throw them out for the chickens. Yet another good reason to have chickens. <laughs> but also not to be concerned about possums or skunks coming through your garden. Now, that was a question that came to me by my own uh, business email was all kinds of damage in the lawn right now, areas that are getting dug up at night that wasn't happening before. Do you think it's squirrels? And I said, well, it certainly could be squirrels. If it were, you'd see them because they're active during the day. But you know what's active at night digging out your lawn is possums and skunks and in some cases raccoons depending on where you are in davis and skunks in particular will just mosey along you can watch them in the middle of the night they'll find they'll be sniffing at the ground level they'll suddenly start digging uh, they'll eat that worm grub whatever move on and you can go out and find a fair bit of damage done by them but it's, it's these are divots is what i would call them skunk divots the golfers know what i'm talking about so when you get a skunk divot you just sprinkle some seed in there cover it with a little bit of soil it'll fill right back in yeah, they'll be back. As long as you have grubs for them to eat, they'll be back. But that's good. That's they're they're helping you. Skunks eat a lot of snails too. So and actually yeah. possums eat and, a lot of ticks. And in in Davis, um, there are certain areas, mine is one of them, where there the skunks are living out south of us in the in the creek and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, in the wintertime, they move north of us to the other little dry creek bed up there. And so twice a year, we have skunks migrating right through my yard. I'm on the travel path. I, yeah. I smell them, you yep. know, a couple of times a year. That's it. Yeah, they don't know. hang around all the time. I'm sure there are places where they they are resident in yeah. it's either their their summer range or their winter range but. my farm is a good example they're out there every night we just walk carefully when we take the dog out late at night they're entirely, <laughs> they're entirely beneficial in the garden yes they will eat some food things that are on the ground i mean anyone who has uh, avocados for example things like that you'll go out and you'll find if it falls to the ground something's going to get at it pretty quickly and usually those are skunks or possums but the damage they do is is trivial and so and they're entirely beneficial in the landscape just be respectful of them and they'll be respectful of you i keep telling my dog that but <laughs> yeah dog's not very respectful huh? yeah. okay so i wanted to uh, go off script a little bit because a friend inherited a, a a property and it has dozens of roses on it okay has been not um not pruned for a couple of years and so the question was how do i prune roses and I said, you know, there's lots of different kinds of roses. So yeah. is there any possibility of knowing what you have? Oh, yes, they all have a name tag. One is Don Juan. And I'm going, great. If you have a name for it, you should be able to find out what kind of a rose it is. And, and to... Don Juan is a climbing so, rose. So if you have a name of a rose, then you should be able to have some place that you can look up to find out what kind of a rose it is and how to prune it. So Don, do you have a chart or something or know of someone who has a chart where I can go and look up, you know, Pixie Girl or Don Juan or whatever no, and find out what it is? No, they'll, they'll get horribly confused because they'll find one of those god-awful checklists of how to prune roses that we've, we've panned so deliberately on the show here so many times. I strongly suggest that you not repeat, not search for how to prune roses on the internet. You'll decide not to grow roses because you'll think it's incredibly complicated. Um, you don't have to prune a rose ever at all. Okay. Ever. You don't have to prune a rose. Nature doesn't prune them. So you can plant roses and let them do whatever they want. They'll get really big. So that may not be desirable and branches will die out here and there. They should be removed if there's dead branches. Pruning of roses has purposes 
particular purposes and the very complicated checklist that you're going to find if you go online to learn about how to prune roses are geared towards specific purposes that may not be your purposes. They're usually geared towards getting longer stems, larger flowers, more perfect flowers, because those lit checklists were written by, I won't say rose fanatics, <laughs> I'll say <Yeah>. rose <laughs> fanciers, people who really care about that. Now, I'm a rose fancier. I have well, a hundred or more roses. A lot of them, I only prune in order to take cuttings. So I'm letting them grow as free as they want to. And I go in in the winter and I take off cuttings for propagation to sell the plants that spring or the following winter at my garden center. Uh, I don't prune them except I'm looking at some that are four to five years in the ground, essentially unpruned. And size control is going to become a goal of my pruning this year because some of them are getting bigger than I happen to want in that spot. But there are roses planted all over the place. And Don Juan is a climber. I have it. I don't prune it at all. Uh, there are roses planted all over the place where people never prune them or their gardening service prunes them with head shears. And they're horrified by that. And they're even more startled when I say, it doesn't matter. You can do that to iceberg rose. You can prune it however you want. You can prune it with head shears. You can prune it not at all, in which case it gets seven or eight feet. You can prune it traditionally, in which case it stays three to four feet. Depends on your purpose. Depends on what you're after. Um, if you go to redwoodbarn.com, you'll find an article, How to Prune Roses. And I'll go ahead and vouch for this one because I know the guy that wrote it. And it starts out with, cut them back 50%. You're the person who wrote it. Correct. Cut them back 50%. And um, there are many years when I had a more traditional rose garden with a very close spacing that necessitates a lot of the pruning methods that you will see described, where cutting them back 50% was really all I needed to do. It was just for size control. And then, uh, so I would actually have, you know, there are a couple of young men, my son and a couple of his friends that lived with me for three or four years, and they wanted to earn money or something. So I would hand them whoppers and I'd say, okay, just cut all, all the roses in this vicinity, not that one, not that one, all these roses cut them back 50%. And they were nervous. They thought they were going to do something horribly wrong. I said, don't worry about it. Cut them back 50%. Just like you're hedging them. I'll come in after the fact. And usually I did, but not always. I'll come in after the fact and clean them up. I'll just take, go in and, you know, your ragged cut, I'll clean that up. I'll do a little you know, placement pruning so the bush is more compact or isn't growing into its neighbor or whatever. But you know what necessitated most of that pruning was how closely I had spaced the roses in the first place. I used the traditional, I'm going to collect as many roses and cram as many roses into my garden model as many new rose fanciers use. I had used that model. So they were on roughly three foot, maybe four foot centers. And any rose bush worth its salt will get to three feet across in a growing season here. Many of them will get to four feet or more across. So I was pruning because I had to, because they were so close together. So when I designed a new rose garden on my farm, uh, starting four or five years ago, taking cuttings, growing them all on their own roots, getting them going, um, I made sure my roses were going in six to eight feet apart. So I can mow around them because that's what I want is to manage the weeds and the grasses here by just mowing right up to the edge of the rose bush between them. And so I wanted wide enough spacing that I could mow for weed management and there'd be great airflow to reduce disease problems. And those roses can get as big as they wish. And that was part of why I was doing it was I was growing a lot of 19th century, 18th century heirloom roses where the descriptions are all over the place. You'll see one catalog that says this grows to three feet and someone else says seven to eight feet. I better know when I'm selling this plant exactly what its size and shape is gonna be. Yeah, there's a couple of them. There's one that I planted, which is a bourbon rose, a 19th century variety. It is 10 by 10 in its fifth year. Wow, big plant. It also has typically two to 300 blooms at a time on it. So it's worth that space 
if you have that room. It's the only rose you're going to have in an average backyard. If you're giving a one bush 10 by 10, it's fragrant, super fragrant. It's an amazing plant. But I wanted to know that. And so size control is really one of the primary reasons that people prune roses, reducing disease problems, getting out dead wood, trying to improve the size of the bloom. That doesn't matter to a lot of us. But size control is the other one. And you, here's, the, here's the good news. And you can tell your friend this. It's really hard to hurt a rose by pruning it. I, one of my very first introductions to how very knowledgeable gardeners can have very different methods and outcomes came from roses. My grandfather, who carefully pruned all his roses to 42 inches, he had a three foot yardstick and he went just above that by a few inches. My grandfather was an engineer, as I've told you before, so they tend to think that way. He did that so the blooms would be at grandma's eye level. Grandma was a short woman, about five feet tall. And if he cut them to 42 inches, the blooms would be right about at her eye level. That was his amuse. That, he said with some amusement, that was his purpose. But I think it was also he liked the way they looked in the landscape when he did that. My neighbors down the street in San Diego pruned them to 16 inches, very methodically. Also, very they were scientists, but that same kind of engineer-like precision. And I thought, that's weird. Granddaddy does them this way. These people do them this way. They both tell me that's the way to prune roses, and they both get great results. Very important lesson that I learned there at the age of about 14, which was that two people can be right with different methods. And in both cases, they were happy with their outcomes. They liked prune them hard. The diseases in coastal San Diego can be pretty high pressure on rose bushes. It's mild and humid all the time. And also, they wanted them shorter. They wanted to keep the plants down three to four foot range. And if you prune them back that hard in January, which is what we did, they would be about three to four foot. Some varieties taller, some shorter. So this tells you two important things. One, you can prune roses almost any way you want, and you probably won't hurt them as long as you don't cut below the graft union uh, and end up with nothing but rootstock. Any other than that, prune them hard, prune them lightly, clip them, shear them. Uh, we've gone through this, all the different methods that, that can be possibly done to roses. Uh, to, and they'll still be great landscape plants. That's the first one. The second is the ultimate size of the bush that you'll read in the descriptions on websites and in catalogs may be at variance with our results here in California where roses grow really, really well. So if David Austin says his rose gets three to four feet, just in your mind, say six to seven. <laughs> in my experience with most of his, Don Juan is a really good example of a small climber. It's a big rose, therefore it's being a plant. It's a tall plant that has a somewhat arching growth habit. It's not a true rambling rose like the traditional ones you see on split rail fences back east. It's not a true, what I would call a true climbing rose. It's just a big, relatively upright variant of the original, which has a more leggy growth habit and kind of arches outward. So we sell it as a climber. I do my, I have two Don Juan and I don't prune them really at all, except if they're sprawling into the plant nearby and that's it. So I grow it as a large shrub. In fact, one of my favorite things to do as someone who has lots of space, and I always wanted to do this before I had lots of space, so I had the opportunity to do it, was plant climbing, quote unquote, roses. In other words, really big roses that just sprawl all over the place with nothing to climb on. Just stick them out on the edge of my meadow and let them sprawl. By the third year, you have an incredibly spectacular plant. And by the fifth year, you have a mass of plant. And I'll tell you something about roses in that situation. They become amazing habitat for wildlife. They shade out all the weeds underneath them. Nothing grows under a rose bush that's eight feet across and solid mass of foliage. And the amount of bloom you get is phenomenal. But yes, if I were entering blooms in a competition, 
I could get bigger blooms and more perfect blooms by pruning those plants back harder. I don't do that. I just like to go out and look at them and take pictures of them. So as far as I'm concerned, they can go wherever they want. But bear in mind, there are some roses out there. So before you jump into this and plant like Rosa Moscata and give it all the room it wants, it'll get 30 feet. So be aware of the potential that the rose has, but don't worry too much about pruning. And we typically do it in January. You can shape roses anytime in our climate, USDA zone nine. You can shape roses anytime you want to. If it's you know fall and there's falling over in the plant nearby, you can shorten those branches up. Just be aware that if you prune them when the weather is mild or warm, they'll immediately sprout and grow from the point where you cut them to. Whereas in the winter, when they're at least in something approximating dormancy that we get here, they won't sprout until we get into spring. It gives you a chance to get in, clean them up, take off leaves if you wanna do all that kind of stuff, but you don't absolutely have to do any of that. Roses, this is really key. In an arid climate, roses are incredibly easy to grow. And all that stuff you read about roses needing this, that, or the other, I don't do any of that. I've never sprayed my roses with anything. I never fertilize them unless they're in containers. I prune them mainly for my own purposes, for aesthetics and for the to shape the plant. And I don't worry too much about them. And I just give them drip irrigation. They like lots of water, but they can survive drought if it comes to that. So they're really an ideal gardener's plant because they do respond to inputs. You want to pamper them, go for it. Feed them every month. The fertilizer manufacturers would love you. Um, you know, deep water them, water them every other day. Roses love water. They, they thrive on it. And they do respond to that. You get bigger blooms. You get more vigorous looking plants and more lush foliage. But if it comes to that and the state tells us we have to cut our water use by 30%, you can do that and the rose bush will be fine. It'll survive. It won't be blooming great in July, but it'll get through the summer. It'll give you this amazing bloom that we get here in California in the fall, which is actually frequently the best bloom that we get on our roses in the Sacramento Valley. And you all need to know this. I, just an example, I've been working with one small bare root grower down in Tyler, Texas. That's where most of the bare root roses in the country are grown. Tyler, Texas was hit with an extreme freeze in the spring. I mean, the whole state of Texas, remember when their grid failed? Well, Tyler, Texas was hit by that massive freeze and it wiped out the bare root rose industry. Uh, my supplier in the first week of October informed me I would get zero bare root roses. I had one grower, one retailer, very big one, buys in hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of roses. One, they have four different vendors. They've cut anywhere from 30%, 25%, 50%, and one of them they haven't even heard from. So if you walk into a garden center and say, I'm looking for a Granada rose, can you order that for me? The honest answer will be no continued effect of the pandemic with the impacts it had and then coupled with this extraordinary freeze that hit the entire rose growing region down there near in the Tyler, Texas area. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. And I think to myself, what a wonderful